Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the Odo Mentor Podcast. We have made it to 2021, and I'm excited to bring you more episodes providing mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All of the opinions and views expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests. Let's get to it. This is Season 3, Episode 6, Rural Private Practice in Otolaryngology. My guest today is Dr. Paul Nyes. Paul completed medical school at the University of Kansas and then stayed on there to do an otolaryngology residency at KU. He's a general otolaryngologist in Mountain Home, Arkansas. He is board certified in sleep and serves as the medical director for his hospital's sleep lab. He is also the Arkansas representative to the Board of Governors for the Academy of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery. Welcome to the show, Paul. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to see you again. Yeah. So, Paul, tell me a little bit about your career path. How did you find otolaryngology? How did you decide to be a physician? And where has that taken you over the years? Well, I was uh, telling people I wanted to be a doctor at age five, I understand, from what they tell me, which was unusual because everyone in my relationship were farmers. And so the only doctor that I saw growing up was family doctor. And that is what I was going to do until I got to about high school. And at that stage, family doctors were stopping doing surgery. It used to be they'd take out gallbladders and appendix and tonsils and deliver babies and set bones. And so I realized I didn't want to just sit in an office. And I got, I was fortunate enough to get a job in a research lab for a general surgeon all the way through college and part of med school. And so I was gonna be a general surgeon until I did general surgery as a student. And I said, I don't like these guys <laughs> and I don't wanna spend the rest of my life with them. And I fortunately had done just an outpatient rotation in ENT. And I realized I loved head and neck anatomy and they were a great bunch of people. I like ENT because it's still the mix of sometimes being like a family doctor, like I originally thought of being, but having surgical procedures associated with it. So it turned out to be a, a perfect match. And so it was in my senior year of med school, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And then what made you decide to practice as a general otolaryngologist in rural practice? That's what our show is about today. So tell me about that. Well, I went through the thought processes because I was offered the option to stay on at the medical center. I guess if I, at that stage in my life, had subspecialized, it would have been in head and neck because I liked those but there were several things that came to play. One, I had one of the Kansas scholarships that we so affectionately called the Kansas Army that you owed them time in an underserved area. And interestingly enough, they would not have allowed me to work that off at the medical center. So if I stayed there, I was gonna owe them a lot of money. So I began looking out in the state of Kansas at a spot but it really in the long run fit me better anyway. I like variety. 
And one of the things I still love about ENT is I can one day being in the operating room doing a temp mastoid and the next day some kids cases and then I can do reconstruction of skin cancers and then I can do head and neck. I do a lot of nose and sinus. So I, I get the variety that I love. I like rural areas because I will be right up from, I never was a city person. I lived in the city for 10 years during training and I never adjusted to the noise and having another house 10 feet away from my house. I grew up on a farm. I was used to quiet. What state did you grow up in? Kansas. Oh, you did. Okay. I, I, I grew up in those days, it would have taken me about an hour to get into KU Med Center from where I lived. Okay. And so how did you find Arkansas? Was it similar enough to where you grew up or was there another connection to that area? Well, there was a connection. It was like so many people. I knew someone that was here and he came because he knew somebody that was here. And you'll find a lot of people end up with that. They know a person in the medical community that they like and they share something with and they ask them to take a look at the area. But I first went to Salina, Kansas. I how, could, long, how long were you there? I was there for three years. Okay. And I could work off my underserved obligation by twice a week going to Hayes, Kansas that did not have an ENT. And after three years, I realized that there were just some philosophies of care that I didn't share with those partners. And I wanted to move on. And that's when I was talking to some of my old residency colleagues and telling them that. And one of them was two years behind me and had come down here to Arkansas and asked me to come take a look. He was here because he had been in Wichita, Kansas with two of the general surgeons and one of the anesthesiologists that ended up here in, in Mountain Home. So we came down, we looked at it and we loved it. And I have continued to love it ever since then. So what does your patient population look like? We have a really varied population. And of course, we see from birth to, I think my oldest patient's been 105. It, it's a good mix. Mountain Home is not, it's not your typical rural community. We have a lot of people from other states because it is a sought after retirement area. We have two large lakes on either side of us. There's a lot of outdoor activity, golfing, hunting, fishing. And so, you know, we have more of a mix than a lot of places in Arkansas. We also have a really good mix of industry. At one time, we had three fairly major boat manufacturers. We have a Baxter Medical, used to be Baxter Travenol plant. You know, they make dialysis equipment and that's a big employer. But it's a big industry of people taking care of the retirement population also. And we have a bit of a tourism industry that tends to be seasonal, but from early spring to late fall, a lot of people coming to the area for the outdoor activities in the lakes and the rivers. There's a fishing resort here that has its own landing strip and people fly from all over the country 
to come trout fish on the White River. It's a mix of like anywhere. We have, you know, the, the Medicaid population. We have a pretty good Medicare population, but we have a lot of the in-between uh, with insurance from all the industry. So it's a varied group. And that's another thing I enjoy. Since you did like head and neck a lot, are you doing a lot of head and neck? I do still do head and neck. Of course, there are things that I did in up to the mid 90s that I don't do now because back then nobody was doing free flaps. Mm -hmm. And I could do a composite resection and a neck dissection. And I thought I did an excellent job of the removal, but there wasn't anybody offering a good reconstruction of the mandible at that time. You know, same thing for partial glossectomies. And, but now I have to temper that with, well, you know, is this person going to be best served by a free flap? And if they are, then they automatically, I, I refer them. I did laryngectomies up until the early 2000s. And again, that reaches a point where when you don't have clinicians and a, and a lot of help in the hospital, then I just said, look, this, this is not something that I'm going to be serving these people best. They get a lot more teaching when they go to the major centers. However, I will say that sometimes I send them to the major center and then they end up coming back to me for problems post-op that nobody is addressing because they're three hours away. So it's an in-between, but I, I try to each patient judge where is the best place that they can be served? And if I can take care of their disease and not leave them with less of a good result uh, as far as any reconstruction, then I'll do that here in town. Yeah, great. So what does your typical weekly schedule look like? Well, now is, is very different from what it used to be. It used to be, I just you know, I worked five days a week and it was a mix of office and usually had about a day's worth of OR uh, and a few small things in the office, skin cancers and things like that. Eventually, over the years, I usually tried to work a half day off into that. And we used to have branch clinics that we went to, my partner and I, and we cut those out again just because there wasn't the time available. And currently, I try to have a day off a week, either as two afternoons or one full day, but I am 64 now. So I think I'm, I'm okay doing that. So how many partners do you have and how's your practice set up? Is it purely private practice or are you employed by the hospital as well? There are three of us now. There were two of us from 91 until I lose track of time, I think. It's either five or six years ago now. And my son came back and joined the practice. So there are three of us now that are full-time. And like I said, I and my other older partner, who's the same age as me, really, try to take a day off a week. We are totally a private practice. The only thing that's outside of that is because I'm the director of the sleep lab, I read all of the sleep studies for the hospital but I don't take that through the office. I do that and I get paid separately for the readings from the hospital as a, a separate contract on that. Got it. And since there, 
there's the three of you. What is, how's your call set up? What's that like? Well, we just share call equally one and three. And as each month is made out, I usually make the schedule out, but I don't tell people when they're going to be on call. What I do is fill in the parts that have to be. And then I send them the, the schedule and say, you know, here it is skeletonized right on here when you want off. We have a big calendar that we keep our vacation time on. You know, if you know eight months from now you want to be off, you write it in and whoever puts down first is going to be off. And we try to not have two of us on vacation at a time, but it happens sometimes. One person's gone. The other one says, hey, this really came up. And we don't have the kind of practice that is going to kill somebody if they're here by themselves, even for a week, if they had to. Because, you know, I and my other partner did it, obviously, for years. So we share equally. We used to have an arrangement with somebody at a town an hour and away that we did one in four. But our hospital executive board said, no, you need to take at least one in three call here for our ER because they didn't like having to send somebody. It wasn't that often that anyone ever would have had to be sent, but that's the way it is now, one in three. Our call is nowhere near as bad as it used to be. When I and my first partner were here alone, there were there were times quite a bit over the years where we would be basically taking call for seven emergency rooms, you know, for surrounding ours and the surrounding communities because they didn't have ENTs there. Or if they did, they only had one ENT and they weren't taking call all the time. But a lot of things changed. One of the biggest changes was they used to just employ ER doctors by the hour. And then they started paying them by what procedures they did. And it was amazing at how much stuff they learned to do. When uh, <laughs> they learned how to pack nosebleeds and they learned how to show, sew up lacerations on the face. So I, I have to be honest, we have a pretty light call and it is not a rare weekend that I go the whole weekend and never have to go in. So what do you see as the main benefits of practicing rurally? Well, to me personally, and this isn't going to be everybody, the main benefit for me is I love areas like this. I don't want to live in the city. The worst time I ever had in my life was a meeting in New York City. I hated every minute I was there. But one of the big things as far as practice, you come to an area like this and everyone knows you're here. I've had people I was in residency with who spent four years going out and visiting and leaving their cards and, and going to meetings to, uh, that the public had to let people know they were there and marketing themselves. I mean, yeah, we, we do a little bit of marketing, but you don't have to do much. And then you don't have these pressures that you get if you're in town and you're scrambling for patients against somebody else. And I hope I don't step on any toes here, but to me, one of the biggest examples was the co-blader. I'll tell you, I can do just as well with a monopolar bayonet cautery, you know, not do any more damage, no more pain. I tried the co-blader, I, I compared it, you know, head to head. In fact, some of them I did one tonsil with a co-blader and one tonsil with the monopolar bayonet. 
and I got equal results. But had I been in the big city, oh, you know, they were hitting the advertising so hard and Ladies Home Journal and Parenting Magazine. And it would have been, oh, you're not an up-to-date doctor because you don't use the best and your kids can't eat a hamburger four hours after the surgery. So we don't have those kind of pressures. You can do good medicine that you think is appropriate and not be forced to do something that you think is unnecessary and more expensive. Yeah. Now the uh, question I get asked is, do you use a laser? So I have to go into why I don't use a laser because it's expensive and isn't any better for post-op bleeding rates. So yeah, I think that evolves. It's, it's, it's a new uh, way to skin the cat every, every couple of years, I think. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say you're getting that question because I got that question from 1988 up until about 2010. And I almost, I almost never get that question anymore. But I was like you, I had to tell people, you know what, folks, a laser is kind of dangerous because you don't control the depth. (laughs) Right. So what difficulties, if any, do you feel like you've faced in rural private practice that you wouldn't have in other types of practice? You know, I'll be honest, any difficulties we face are incredibly minor. I think it's easier if you're in a big city to get somebody to come show you equipment is probably one of the biggest things. I guess if you were in a large city and you had somebody right across town that was a subspecialist and your patient needed, it's easier on the patient to not have to drive a long ways. But as far as on me as a practitioner, I feel it's easy. Uh, I'll tell you one one of the biggest advantages is time of commute. I guess I haven't talked to a lot of people in recent years, but my impression would be that there are going to be a lot of people in the cities that are going to spend at least 30 to 45 minutes a day one way getting to work. I get to live in the middle of 98 acres, much of it wooded, and it takes me seven minutes to drive to the hospital. Yeah. You know, and to me, a traffic jam is if I come at the wrong time and there are five cars at the stop sign to the highway and there's heavy traffic on the highway and it takes me three minutes to get on the highway. You know, that's, that's a bad day. Yeah. That's uh that's like my, my father, my father's a, until he joined the hospital a couple of years ago, he was a rural private practice, solo practice OBGYN. And he also still has a 10 minute commute to the hospital. So he's enjoyed that. <laughs> yes. And then he comes to visit me and he's like, how far do you have to drive to get to the university? (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) We interviewed some people in the past when we were trying to get a partner to come and they would say things like, well, you know, uh, the one said my mother visits me like three times a year and she'd have to drive all that way from the airport. Well, we're two hours from a regional airport. And so I'm thinking, well, three times a year, you might drive two hours and you can probably save yourself five hours a week on the commute, you know, so it's all a (laughs) trade-off. For sure. So you and I both are alumni of the University of Kansas residency program. Do you feel like residency prepared you well for practice? And the corollary to that is, 
what should someone who's thinking about doing rural private practice in olaryngology look for in a program to set them up well? Well, first of all, the KUENT program I went through was incredibly different from the KUENT program that you went through. And so when I went through, we had very few staff. At one time in my residency for a short time, we only had three staff. It was two at KU and one at the VA. For the most of the time, I, we had three staff at KU and one at the VA. And we had what we had at KU was two head and neck, but it was, you know, all purpose head and neck. So, of course, they did everything. They did the beads, they did sinus and the big cases. And we had a, a neurotologist for most of the time that I was there. Whereas, obviously, when you went through, there were quite a few more staff there, uh, more subspecialties identified. But I felt I was very well prepared to come out because when I went through, virtually all cases were resident cases. It was a rare case that the staff would say, hey, this is my patient. I'm going to do this patient. I was very fortunate myself that I won't go into all the details, but I basically ended up being senior resident for part of my third year at KU and all of my fourth and fifth year, I was a chief resident. And so I had an incredible number of cases and I was left alone. You couldn't do that nowadays, but I mean, I had cases referred in from the community to the med center and 90% of the time I was doing the case with two more junior residents under me. So I had a lot of time to build confidence. So that's not going to happen for everybody. I understand. But I would say if you want to be generally in T, I think you can get what you need probably from any decent program. But I think I've seen more pressures from residents going to programs with lots of subspecialty trained and fewer generally in T's to be pushed, hey, you, you know, you really ought to do this. You really ought to do head and neck. And I, I personally have seen any number of young residents coming out who went and did a fellowship. And they're never going to be in a situation, even if they stay in the city, to adequately use that fellowship. Or if they do, if they're sticking by their guns, I know when in, one in particular, he was nearly starving at least for three or four years of you know, trying to do just what they wanted to do. So I still think being a general ENT in an area like this is an amazing opportunity. And unfortunately, if we keep the trend with the number of residents going to subspecialty training, there are lots and lots of medium-sized towns across the country that are not going to have ENT coverage at all, and then still be two hours drive away from somewhere that does have a larger ENT community. And I think our academy needs to be maybe paying a little more attention to what do we need to do to try to serve our public? And people say, well, I want to go to the city and I want to take one in 15 call and, and do things like that. But I think we have amazing things to offer as far as lifestyle in medium and smaller communities. 
and a lot of satisfaction, a lot of job satisfaction. And you can do everything you're comfortable doing and not have somebody on the hospital staff that's going to say, you know what, you shouldn't be doing this because we have so-and-so here. And he was subspecialty trained. And I'm not saying do stuff that you're not adequately trained to do, but I'm saying if you feel that you understand the anatomy and your surgical skills are good enough and your understanding of the disease process is good enough to get good results, then this is a place to go. Speaking of the academy, you're the uh, governor for the Board of Governors uh, for Arkansas. How have you kept yourself connected with the larger otolaryngology community? Well, over the years, I took part in the Board of Governors activities, and that was a great way to mix with people from all over the country. And for many years, I went every year to the spring meeting for the Board of Governors at Alexandria, Virginia. And in the old days, we used to go up on the hill and talk to our congressmen and senators up at the Capitol and the legislative buildings, which uh, I miss that. We don't do that anymore. But that was a great way to network and uh, keep in contact with people. I'm a tremendous fan of ENT Connect uh, nowadays. I think it's a great place for people to go and bring up a problem. You know, there are a lot of us out here who don't have somebody who's a subspecialist across the hall. But you know what? I have never hesitated to call my referral, the doctors I refer to in the subspecialties, or nowadays text them or email them and, and ask them a question about a particular patient. And I have found they've always been great about getting back to me because they know I'm going to, to send all the patients that I think need their skills to see them. So, you know, that's the way I've stayed connected. And, and as far as CME, I like going to meetings. Everybody has their own things they like on their CME. My other partner that I have had for years doesn't really like going to meetings that much. And he tried to get anything online or, or the booklets from a malpractice carrier. But because I like going to meetings and I would still do those other things, most years I end up having over 40 hours a year in CME. But I like the meetings because of the ability to interact with others. And I think I get half my education at the meeting by sitting and talking to the other practitioners that are in the audience with me during the breaks and say, hey, how do, how do you do this? Yeah, so well, I, I, I met you at a meeting. It was the KU ski meeting, but that's how I met you. And, and I remember having a great conversation with you. I don't think I taught you anything because I was a resident then, but, <laughs> but it, was, it was a fun social conversation about, you know, your life and, and what was going on. So, well, you may have taught me something you didn't know. I, uh, I can learn from anybody who uh, <laughs> has some information to pass on, but that KU meeting was wonderful. In fact, you know, a good share of the people at that meeting were people who came well after I left KU and there was a big cliff that occurred between when the chairman, when I was there the, all the residents who were under him and before, and all the residents who came under the next chairman and his successor came through. And there was no interaction. So it's like, I was the only one from what I'd call the old guard who came back and started going to those meetings. 
but I found it great. It was a way to recontact with the program that hadn't happened. And I got to meet the staff. And even though we're five hours away from the University of Kansas now, occasionally I send a patient up to one of the subspecialists there because I've developed a contact and I know what they can offer. And our other main referral center is Little Rock. That's three hours away from us. But honestly, there are some subspecialties that I don't feel are served as well there as they are at KU. So occasionally I'll send somebody up that way. Yeah. And then your son actually also is a University of Kansas residency alumni and you recruited him. So like you said before, he's in your practice now. Was this an easy choice to recruit him? And how is it working with a family member? Well, and I'll tell you this, I didn't really recruit him. Okay. Okay. And I'll try to not make it too long a story, but I, all the way through, wanted my offspring, I have a son and a daughter, to do whatever they wanted to do. I tried to give them the background and the skills, but obviously I think, and my wife is an RN, and we have a lot of interest in nature and the outdoors, and I think they both took on our love of biological sciences. And so I didn't encourage them to go to med school. Uh, My son did go to med school. My daughter's a veterinarian. And when he was in med school, I did not encourage him to go into ENT. I told him to look around. And for quite a bit of med school, he wasn't going to go into ENT. He had a couple of other specialties he had in mind. But he finally decided on ENT. And he got married after college in med school. And because his wife also has her own desires and interests, I never put any pressure that you ought to come home because I wanted it to be their decision where they wanted to go. It's kind of funny. It was when he was coming to the time that he wanted that he was going to need to decide on where he was going to go after residency. He asked me one day, he said, Dad, would it be okay with you if I came back to Mountain Home? (laughs) And I said, Absolutely. I would love you to come here. So what I did is then once they said they were interested and they came back for a visit to really, you know, there's a difference between coming home to see your folks and coming to town to really evaluate the town and say, is this where I want to practice? But when they did that, I said, okay, all the gloves are off now that I am going to give you the hard sell about why you should come here you know, now that you've decided it, because I didn't ever want there to be any impression on his part or his wife's part that dad kind of coerced me into coming back into practice. And I, I did it for him. No, I wanted them to do it for them. And he has an amazing opportunity here now, because first of all, I said, it's easy for people to know you're in a rural area anyway, when you show up, but he showed up to practice with name recognition already. In fact, it's not infrequent. People say, was that the same Dr. Nice that, you know, did my dad's surgery? You know, he, he was able to just walk in. We didn't have any stipulations and we still don't. Anyone who calls in to get into the office, if they're referred directly to one of us, then yes, they make an appointment. But people just calling up to get in are equally distributed with whoever has openings. And so he developed a following right away. And 
he's in a situation now that he has two older partners who want to slow down and don't want to compete with him. And that's another thing I've heard so many times. A young guy comes into practice and there are older partners that are still jealously guarding their sources of patients. And it's like you have to fight to start getting some referral patterns. That's never been that way for him. So he's busier than I am by far now, which is fine with me. So it, it was a great opportunity. And I think he will always know that it was his choice to come. Yeah, that's important that he doesn't feel like it was pressure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So regarding the business side, I think one of the things that a lot of our residents coming out are nervous about with joining a more rural, you know, completely private practice versus a hospital-based practice is this idea of, I don't have enough background business or financial knowledge to make this really a reasonable choice for me. How did that work for you? And do you feel like that's been difficult? I don't think that it was ever really difficult, but I will say, I don't know if I came out now fresh if it would be as easy as it was when I came out, because I think things are maybe a little more difficult now with all of the, the MIPS and MACRA and, and that sort of thing. But I, I had zero business background. Like I told you, I grew up on a farm. I never had anybody in when I was in residency, they told us nothing. I didn't know what a CPT code was when I finished residency. So I did join a group that was already established for the three years. But I'll tell you what, I went to a couple of practice management courses early on. And when I came down here, I felt capable. But I think there are also there are more resources available nowadays. And if let's say somebody was going to go to a town that didn't have any ENT, that hospital, even if they don't employ you, is going to want to do everything they can to help you get going and be successful. So if, if you want to do a practice management course and you can find somebody to be your office manager who has had some experience, I think generally the hospital will let somebody on, on their side help you out. If you join a practice that, let's say there's an older person who's wanting to sell theirs, many times they're willing to stay on for a short while and help you get going, but they already have all the mechanisms set up. You know, I'm seeing here in a year or two that we're probably going to try to get a partner to come join John, but they'll be able to just walk right into an established practice. But I think resources are there for you. In fact, even our malpractice carrier, we use state volunteer mutual, which covers Tennessee and Arkansas, and I think Alabama, they have practice management resources just through the uh, malpractice carrier. And they will come and review our processes in the office and tell us if they think there are any problems anywhere with shortcomings, even on the financials aspect. Yeah. I don't think it's insurmountable. So looking back now, I mean, you're getting close to retirement, maybe at some point. Mm -hmm. Looking back at your long career, what are some lessons you had to learn the hard way? That's probably the hardest question you've asked me. You know, I think my career, if there are lessons, they've all been small lessons irregularly learned. For my particular practice area, 
when I came here, I think probably the biggest lesson was how different the family practice, general practice community was compared to where I had come from. And it was back then because it's not exactly the same now that it was, but there were some old guys here who were fairly poorly trained, but very jealous of their patients and anything that could be charged on the part of that patient. So say like when I came where I used to be, family practice doctor would send me a patient. I'm going to do surgery. I would send them to the hospital to get their chest x-ray, EKG and labs. Well, I found out third hand that one of the guys, the head of one of the, the bigger groups here was really bothered that I didn't send all the patients back to their office to have all that stuff done at their office. And so once I learned that, I started sending them to that office, but then we would get a black chest X-ray and an illegible EKG that had been faxed over and none of the labs would be there. So I learned how to try to be diplomatic and work with some people that I, I hate to say this, but some people maybe I didn't fully respect their practice and the way they cared for their patients. But I learned that I needed to rise above that. If I was going to help the patient, I needed to work within what that practitioner wanted. We had a, a general surgeon in the area that had lost his privileges at the hospital due to some very bad practices and high infection rate. And he would refer patients to me, but then he had a debriefing visit always scheduled the minute they left my office to see if it was something he could still try to do. And he was trying to do head and neck surgery, you know, like, you know, a metastatic squamous cell in the submandibular area. And I told him I was going to do it. And he talked the patient into letting him do it. And the patient died six months later because he cut a cross tumor and left it there. So that was one of the things. But fortunately, that's not pertinent to our area now. Everything is, has changed. But I don't think there are going to be any pockets that still had as many untrained or poorly trained people as were here. But I mean, that was 30 years ago. We still had a doctor here in town when I came who had never done an internship and basically, part of his training was reading for his MD. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that ACGME would certify that now. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to do it all over again, if you had to become an otolaryngologist again, would you do it? I wouldn't hesitate in a second. I love this field. And uh, I think we have one of the most amazing populations of doctors of any of the specialties. I can't remember the last time I, I met anyone in ENT that I had no respect for. I think we are fortunate that we attract a good group of people who have interest in general things about the patient and not just focused on their specialty and overall well-trained. I think we have good training programs in ENT, but I love the mix of practice in the office and in surgery. And if, you know, those people who pay attention to what's been occurring over the years, and this started in the early nineties of Medicare 
always trying to find ways to cut money somewhere. But because we are a good mix, if they cut surgery, they're usually giving it to practice. And if they cut, you know, office practice, if they give to office practice, and if if give to surgery, they're going to cut office practice. But at any rate, we usually end up being the specialty that's almost the least hit by any of the big changes because we'll pick up in one area where they try to steal it because they can't take it from everything or they run into too much trouble. I think we, we sit in a pretty good position. Anything you want to add? I can't think of anything other than I'll, I think I did a pretty good job of it earlier, but I'll still put in the plug that uh, I think some of the residents would be pleasantly surprised to know what kind of a lifestyle and practice they can have by practicing in a medium to small size community. You can be such an important part of the community. Some people may not like it, but I'll tell you, everywhere I go, I see people I know, they know me. I've treated them. I've treated their family. We are easily accessible. You know, for, for me, the Buffalo National River was the first national river. I can be down at the Buffalo in 40 minutes from Mountain Home on a canoe in that river. There are other people have to go take a number of days off to travel somewhere to get to go do things like that. I can take call water skiing on the lake out here <laughs> because I can be back in and you know at the ER in 20 to 25 minutes from being on the lake. So you know people are saying well you have to take more call than I do. But you know what my call doesn't cramp cramp my style that much. We have a boat we've always had a boat on the lake since we got here because I love the water and we can be out swimming or skiing uh, and take call and then you're back in. It's a great lifestyle. And I think there's an amazing amount of professional satisfaction that's possible. Because like I said, if you have any interest at all in general ENT, you can do everything you're trained to do. I did stapes in the 90s, in the first half of the 90s. And the reason I quit wasn't so much that I couldn't get a good result, but it was because I couldn't keep the OR staff trained well enough because that was back when we were trading off and I'd get a new tech in. It wasn't worth it. But when I was first here, we actually had a few more patients that were candidates because I think nobody had been in the area properly evaluating them previously. If it's something you're well-trained in and you can keep doing enough cases and stay knowledgeable, you can do it in a place like this. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today, Paul. This was great conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, give it five stars and leave a review. Okay, let's dance.